This is section 53 of Mark Twain, a biography, volume 2. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mark Twain, a biography, by Albert Bigelow Payne. Chapter 157, Minor Matters of a Great Year. The Grant episode, so important in all its phases, naturally overshadowed other events of 1885. Mark Twain was so deeply absorbed in this great publishing enterprise that he wasted little thought or energy in other directions. Yet there are a few minor things that it seems worth while to remember. Howells has told something of the author's reading, given for the Longfellow Memorial, an entertainment managed by George Parsons Lathrop, though Howells justly claims the glory of having fixed the price of admission at five dollars. Then he recalls a pleasing anecdote of Charles Eliot Norton, who introduced the attractions. Norton presided, and when it came Clemens' turn to read, he introduced him with such exquisite praises as he best knew how to give, but before he closed he fell a prey to one of those lapses of tact which are the peculiar peril of people of the greatest tact. He was reminded of Darwin's delight in Mark Twain and how, when he came from his long day's exhausting study, and sank into bed at midnight, he took up a volume of Mark Twain, whose books he always kept on the table beside him, and whatever had been his tormenting problem or excess of toil, he felt secure of a good night's rest from it. A sort of blank ensued which Clemens filled in the only possible way. He said, he should always be glad he had contributed to the repose of that great man, to whom science owed so much, and then without waiting for the joy in every breast to burst forth, he began to read. Howells tells of Mark Twain's triumph on this occasion, and in a letter at the time he wrote, You simply straddled down to the footlights, and took that house up in the hollow of your hand, and tickled it. Howells adds that the show netted $1,700. This was early in May. Of literary work, Beyond the War Paper, The Private History of a Campaign that Failed, published December 1885, Clemens appears to have done very little. His thoughts were far too busy with plans for furthering the sale of the great military memoir to follow literary ventures of his own. At one time he was impelled to dictate an autobiography grant's difficulties in his dying hour suggesting this and he arranged with redpath who was no longer a lecture agent and understood stenography to cooperate with him in the work he dictated a few chapters but he was otherwise too much occupied to continue also he was unused to dictation and found it hard and the result unsatisfactory two open communications from mark twain that year deserve to be remembered one of these unsigned, was published in the Century magazine, and expressed the need for a universal tinker, the man who can accept a job in a large household or in a community as master of all trades, with sufficient knowledge of each to be ready to undertake whatever repairs are likely to be required in the ordinary household, such as to put in window panes, mend gas leaks, jack plane the edges of doors that won't shut keep the waste pipe and other water pipe joints glue and otherwise repair havoc done in furniture etc 
the letter was signed x y z and it brought replies from various parts of the world none of the applicants seemed universally qualified but in kansas city a business was founded on the idea adopting the universal tinker as its firm name the other letter mentioned was written to the christian union inspired by a tale entitled what ought we to have done it was a tale concerning the government of children especially concerning the government of one child john jr a child who as it would appear from the tale had a habit of running things pretty much to his own notion the performance of john jr and of his parents in trying to manage him stirred mark twain considerably it being enough to make a body's blood boil as he confesses and it impelled him to set down surreptitiously his impressions of what would have happened to john jr as a member of the clemens household he did not dare to show the communication to mrs clemens before he sent it for he knew pretty well what its fate would be in that case so he took chances and printed it without her knowledge the letter was published july sixteenth eighteen eighty five it is too long to be included entire but it is too illuminating to be altogether omitted after relating in considerable detail mrs clemens's method of dealing with an unruly child the gentleness yet firmness of her discipline he concludes the mother of my children adores them there is no milder term for it and they worship her they even worship anything which the touch of her hand has made sacred they know her for the best and truest friend they have ever had or ever shall have they know her for one who never did them a wrong and cannot do them a wrong who never told them a lie nor the shadow of one who never deceived them by even an ambiguous gesture who never gave them an unreasonable command nor ever contented herself with anything short of a perfect obedience who has always treated them as politely and considerately as she would the best and oldest in the land and has always required of them gentle speech and courteous conduct toward all of whatsoever degree with whom they chanced to come in contact they know her for one whose promise whether of reward or punishment is gold and always worth its face to the uttermost farthing in a word they know her and i know her for the best and dearest mother that lives and by a long long way the wisest in all my life i have never made a single reference to my wife in print before as far as i can remember except once in the dedication of a book and so after these fifteen years of silence perhaps i may unseal my lips this one time without impropriety or indelicacy i will institute one other novelty 
I will send this manuscript to the press without her knowledge and without asking her to edit it. This will save it from being edited into the stove. Susie's biography refers to this incident at considerable length. She states that her father had misgivings after he had sent it to the Christian Union, and that he tried to recall the manuscript, but found it too late. She sets down some comments of her own on her mother's government, then tells us of the appearance of the article. When the Christian Union reached the farm and Papa's article in it, all ready and waiting to be read to Mama, Papa hadn't the courage to show it to her, for he knew she wouldn't like it at all, at first, and he didn't, but he might have let it go and never let her see it, but finally he gave his consent to her seeing it and told Clara and I we could take it to her, which we did with tardiness, and we all stood round Mama while she read it, all wondering what she would say and think about it. She was too much surprised, and pleased privately, too, to say much at first, but as we all expected, publicly, or rather, when she remembered that this article was to be read by every one that took the Christian Union, she was rather shocked and a little displeased. Susie goes on to tell that the article provoked a number of letters, most of them pleasant ones, but some of them of quite another sort. One of the latter fell into her mother's hands, after which there was a general regret that the article had been printed, and the subject was no longer discussed at Quarry Farm. Susie's biography is a unique record. It was a sort of combined memoir and journal, charming in its innocent frankness and childish insight. She used to keep it under her pillow, and after she was asleep the parents would steal it out and find a tender amusement and pathos in its quaint entries. It is a faithful record so far as it goes, and the period it covers is an important one, for it presents a picture of Mark Twain in the fullness of his manhood, in the golden hour of his fortune. Susie's beginning has a special value here. Susie's spelling and punctuation are preserved. We are a very happy family. We consist of Papa, Mama, Jean, Clara, and me. It is Papa I am writing about and I shall have no trouble in not knowing what to say about him, as he is a very striking character. Papa's appearance has been described many times, but very incorrectly. He has beautiful curly gray hair, not any too thick or any too long, just right. A Roman nose, which greatly improves the beauty of his features, kind blue eyes, and a small mustache. He has a wonderfully shaped head and profile. He has a very good figure. In short, he is an extraordinarily fine-looking man. All his features are perfect, except that he hasn't extraordinary teeth. His complexion is very fair, and he doesn't wear a beard. He is a very good man, and a very funny one. He has got a temper, but we all of us have in this family. He is the loveliest man I ever saw, or ever hoped to see, and oh, so absent-minded. That this is a fair statement of the Clemens home, and the truest picture of Mark Twain at fifty that has been preserved, cannot be doubted. His hair was iron-gray, not entirely white, at this time. 
the auburn tints everywhere mingled with the shining white that later would mantle it like a silver crown he did not look young for his years but he was still young always young indestructibly young in spirit and bodily vigor susy tells how that summer he blew soap bubbles for the children filling the bubbles with tobacco smoke how he would play with the cats and come clear down from his study on the hill to see how sour mash then a kitten was getting along also how he wrote a poem for jean's donkey catacon which they made kiddichen she quotes the poem kiddichen oh du lieb kiddichen du beast ganz bewitchen wah he in summer days kiddichen thart dear from nose to britchen wah he no doubt thou'lt get a switchin when for mischief thou'rt itchin wah hey but when you're good kiddichen you shall feast in james kitchen wah hey oh now lift up thy song thy noble note prolong thou living chinese gong wah he wah he wah sweetest donkey man ever saw clemens undertook to ride kiddichen one day to show the children how it should be done but kiddichen resented this interference and promptly flung him over her head he thought she might have been listening to the poem he had written of her susy's discovery that the secret of her biography was known is shown by the next entry and the touch of severity in it was probably not entirely unconscious papa said the other day i am a mugwump and a mugwump is pure from the marrow out papa knows that i am writing this biography of him and he said this for it he doesn't like to go to church at all why i never understood until just now he told us the other day that he couldn't bear to hear anyone talk but himself but that he could listen to himself talk for hours without getting tired of course he said this in joke but i've no doubt it was founded on truth susy's picture of life at quarry farm at this period is realistic and valuable too valuable to be spared from this biography there are eleven cats at the farm here now papa's favorite is a little tortoise-shell kitten he has named sour mash and a little spotted one fanny it is very pretty to see what papa calls the cat procession it was formed in this way old minnie cat headed the mother of all the cats next to her came aunt susie then clara on the donkey accompanied by a pile of cats then papa and jean hand in hand and a pile of cats brought up in the rear mamma and i made up the audience our various occupations are as follows papa rises about half-past seven in the morning breakfasts at eight writes plays tennis with clara and me and tries to make the donkey go in the morning does various things in p m and in the evening plays tennis with clara and me and amuses jean and the donkey mamma rises about quarter to eight breakfasts at eight teaches jean german reading from nine to ten reads german with me from ten to eleven then she reads studies or visits with aunt susie for a while 
and then she reads to clara and i till lunchtime things connected with english history for we hope to go to england next summer while we sew then we have lunch she studies for about half an hour or visits with aunt susie then reads to us an hour or more then studies writes reads and rests till supper time after supper she sits out on the porch and works till eight o'clock from eight o'clock to bedtime she plays whist with papa and after she has retired she reads and studies german for a while clara and i do most everything from practicing to donkey riding and playing tag while jean's time is spent in asking mamma what she can have to eat it is impossible at this distance to convey all that the farm meant to the children during the summers of their infancy and childhood and girlhood which they spent there it was the paradise the dreamland they looked forward to during all the rest of the year through the long happy months there they grew strong and brown and drank deeply of the joy of life their cousins julia jervis and ida langdon ranged about their own ages and were almost their daily companions their games were mainly of the out-of-doors the woods and meadows and hillside pastures were their playground susie was thirteen when she began her diary a gentle thoughtful romantic child one afternoon she discovered a wonderful tangle of vines and bushes between the study and the sunset a rare hiding-place she ran breathlessly to her aunt can i have it can clara and i have it all for our own the petition was granted of course and the place was named helen's bower for they were reading thaddeus of warsaw and the name appealed to susie's poetic fancy then mrs clemens conceived the idea of building a house for the children just beyond the bower it was a complete little cottage when finished with a porch and with furnishings contributed by friends and members of the family there was a stove a tiny affair but practical dishes table chairs shelves and a broom the little house was named ellerslie out of grace aguilar's days of robert bruce and became one of the children's most beloved possessions but alas for helen's bower a workman was sent to clear away the debris after the builders and being a practical man he cut away helen's bower destroyed it utterly susie first discovered the vandalism and came rushing to the house in a torrent of sorrow for her the joy of life seemed ended and it was long before she could be comforted but ellerslie in time satisfied her hunger for retreat became in fact the nucleus around which the children's summer happiness centered to their elders the farm remained always the quiet haven once to orion's wife clemens wrote this is a superb sunday the city in the valley is purple with shade as seen from up here at the study the cranes are reading and loafing in the canvas-curtained summer-house fifty yards away on a higher the highest point the cats are loafing over at ellerslie which is the children's estate and dwelling-house in their own private grounds by deed from susie crane 
a hundred yards from the study among the clover and young oaks and willows livy is down at the house but i shall now go and bring her up to the cranes to help us occupy the lounges and hammocks whence a great panorama of distant hills and valley and city is seeable the children have gone on a lark through the neighboring hills and woods susie and clara horseback and jean driving a buggy with the coachman for comrade and assistant at need it is a perfect day indeed the ending of each year's summer brought only regret clemens would never take away all his things he had an old superstition that to leave some article ensured return mrs clemens also left something her heart's content the children went around bidding various objects good-bye and kissed the gates of ellerslie too end of chapter one hundred and fifty seven minor matters of a great year read by john greenman